Well, good morning. It's um, such a pleasure to be with you today. It's amazing how God weaves things together over the decades. There are probably only a handful of sermons that I can really remember as a preteen really impacting my life. And uh, one of them was by a man that I'd not yet had the privilege of meeting at that point, your very own Pastor Cinder. It was, um, I think if I'm right, it was entitled Thirsting for Living Water. And I remember feeling this, even at that kind of young age, feeling this deep longing for more of God as I listened to it. I would never have imagined that I'd receive an invite to come and share with his congregation these many years on. So it really is a joy for me to be here. I'd like to get straight into it, if I may, as time is short this morning, and I'm really excited about speaking to you from the Gospel of John, from what is perhaps one of the most well-known and the most breathtaking of the claims of Jesus in declaring himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. If you've got your Bible with you, you may want to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, But I'll read the verses to us and they'll come up behind me on the screen as well. So John 14, um, and I'll read from verses 1 to 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And often when people speak to this passage, it's just so tempting to jump in straight away to Jesus' incredible claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to take those three claims, actually, as headings and speak to them. But I think that we can miss a lot if we do that, because we only hear one part of the conversation. In our own conversations, unfortunately, we're often very quick to jump in with the answer before we've even listened to the question. But the Gospels record tens of questions that people brought to Jesus and present us with a wonderful model as Jesus got straight into the real issues at stake by addressing the heart of the question. And his answers left people perplexed, intrigued, often speechless at his wisdom and authority. And so what I want to try and do for the next half an hour or so is to look more carefully at the dialogue. In other words, to look at Thomas's questions to Jesus, to look at the questions behind that question, and then to unpack some of the profundity and the significance of Jesus's reply as he, with this one statement, addresses the deeper cry of the heart. Let me give you some of the context. In the preceding passage, John records Jesus' conversation with his disciples in which he tells them again that he's about to leave them. It isn't the first time that he's having this conversation with them, and it isn't the last. Jesus 
time and again is gently preparing the disciples for the deep trauma that's about to hit them as they're going to watch Jesus be crucified and with him all of their hopes and dreams. He's anticipating the despair and the fear that they're going to experience in the intervening days before they see the resurrected Jesus. And he's very strategic in his teaching in advance. He's taking the moment in these few sentences to not only prepare them emotionally for what is to come, but to teach them the truths that they will need to know in order to withstand the process. Truths that will lead them to finally understand the significance of who it is that is standing amongst them and what it is he is offering. But for the moment, the disciples are slow in understanding Jesus' discussion. There's a lot of confusion about what it is exactly that Jesus is saying to them. They understand that he's leaving. They get that much. But they don't know where he's going or why. And they're getting more and more unsettled with this anxious fear of the future as he talks about their imminent separation and the fact that they are going to disown him. And into this context, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You know what I found surprising about these words is that they're intended to form a command and it's one that's meant to ring across the fiercest storms of life for all of us. But when we're carrying heavy burdens it seems not only untenable in the moment that we should be able to follow such a command but incredibly insensitive of Jesus to have issued it in the first place where we feel helpless in our sorrows. And you can imagine the disciples might well have been thinking, well, that's nice, Jesus. I wish my heart wasn't troubled. But how? How can I stop my heart from being troubled? In all of the uncertainty of the future and the anxieties and the stress and the brokenness that we're all dealing with. But they don't even get a chance to voice an objection because Jesus immediately continues with these intriguing comments. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And here, Thomas finally interjects with an objection, having been told that he mustn't let his heart be troubled, and that somehow connectedly he must believe in God and in Jesus. And having been informed that he knows the way to where Jesus is going, he finally stops Jesus and says, well, hang on a minute. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? We don't know where, we go, where you're going. It seems a bit of an obvious point, doesn't it? How can we know the way? And I'd like to suggest that there are actually three separate questions going on here. And they are questions out of which worldviews are constructed. And they're relevant to each of us, even though you may not have voiced them in quite this way. And it is these deeper questions of the heart to which Jesus addresses his reply. Firstly, where are we going? Secondly, how do we get there? And thirdly, how do the answers to these questions connect in with the present troubles of the heart that we're experiencing so that we may not be troubled? 
And Jesus' answer in these seemingly simple words, I am the way and the truth and the life, is incredibly sophisticated in addressing all three questions. He builds layer upon layer across the same profound truths. And although the disciples just do not get it in the course of the conversation, 11 of the 12 of them go on to live the rest of their lives and 10 of them to give their lives for the conviction of the truth that these words contain. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. And I'm going to take each of these questions in turn and consider Jesus' reply. So firstly, where are we going? I've recently come back from a holiday up in the Scottish Highlands with my husband. I've been married to the wonderful Toby Walker for coming up to four and a half years now. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it was with a little bit of concern that I came to the realization that the Walker family are very aptly named in that they love walking holidays. (laughs) Not a love that I can confess to have shared previously. It felt like a bit of an initiation, right? And uh, it's taken the better part of four years. But my husband finally convinced me to go on this walking holiday with him. And so we went, all decked out in our walking boots and walking gear and waterproofs. We were in Scotland. And for some reason that doesn't quite seem as obvious to me in retrospect, we decided it was the best idea to um, not follow the gentle, you know, strolls that were in our handbook and instead, for someone who hasn't done any exercise for about 10 years, <laughs> to climb Ben Nevis. And incidentally, when I was telling my friends this back at home, they put a bit of a dampener on it by telling me that although Ben Nevis is the highest mountain in the UK, it's probably better likened to a hill compared to mountains elsewhere. Let me assure you, it was a big deal as I huffed and puffed and complained and pushed and was pushed quite literally up this mountain by my husband. It was a beautiful day and to be honest, I was, I was really looking forward to the view at the top. But as we were climbing up, sure enough, this cloud was coming down and you can probably guess what happened about half an hour before we got to the summit. We entered into this cloud and basically into an almost complete whiteout. So much so that when we finally got to the summit, we had to ask some others, walkers on the journey, whether that pile of rocks and the plaque was really it. It was. And we took a very disappointing picture of us engulfed in white, turned around and painfully climbed back down. And as we were coming back down the mountain, and I may have been complaining just a little bit, I was a little bit despondent about the total lack of a view, I couldn't help but reflect that it was quite an apt analogy for our present cultures. We are living in very driven cultures. We are amongst the wealthiest societies that have ever lived, uh, the most developed, supposedly the most enlightened, And yet we're still striving, striving for a sense of purpose, for meaning, for significance, for happiness. Many of us live with this kind of existential question, where am I going? We're looking to some far off place where if we can only get there, we think everything will be well. And we strive and push and work our way to this place where we thought we were going, only to get there and find a whiteout. There's nothing there. 
It fails to satisfy. And very quickly, the goalposts change again, and we're looking to another far-off place. I recently heard a quote from Jim Carrey, one of Hollywood's highest-paid actors, who said this in an interview. I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they've ever dreamed of so that they could see that that's not the answer. And I think that we'll probably all have heard quotes like that before. And maybe you even know that the things that you're chasing after won't really satisfy. But have you noticed that doesn't change the fundamental question? We're still in search of something which is always just that little bit far off. I wonder if we stopped and asked ourselves for a moment how we would answer the question in all of this striving, where is it that I'm trying to get to? Where is it that I'm meant to be getting to? And this in part is what Thomas is asking of Jesus. Where am I meant to be going For the past three years, the disciples have lived with Jesus, walked and talked with Jesus, and he's become the very center of their lives, giving them meaning and direction and purpose. And now they're hit with the realization that he's about to leave them. And in the unsettledness and uncertainty that that realization has brought, Thomas hears Jesus talk in metaphorical language about heaven and totally misunderstands the focus of Jesus' discussion. He assumes that there is some far-off place to which he must make his own way. And he wants to find out where he is going. In other words, to set his purpose in place and then work to get there. He's asking Jesus, where? And if we're not careful, we can let our thinking become similarly weighted. We hit troubles and we begin to wish our present seasons away always looking to some future place, some future date where we think we'll be content. We can slip into thinking that some future success, prestige, relationship, wealth, health, or whatever else, I don't know what that specific thing will be for you. We can think that it will be the key to all being well. We're often not like the Apostle Paul who writes to the Philippians, I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation. He was a man who had really understood the heart of what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. Thomas comes to Jesus with aware. And Jesus, through the discussion, completely redefines the assumptions behind that question by answering with a who. Notice Jesus' opening comment. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And he later tells his disciples, no one comes to the father except through me. It's a very specific train of thought. Each time... You're expecting him to end the sentence with a place. I will come and will take you to, and you're waiting for him to say, to where? To a place. And when he says, no one comes to the Father, you're expecting no one comes to a place, the where of a future heaven. And each time Jesus instead finishes the sentence with the person of God. Jesus is saying, 
your destination, this place where you will find your fulfillment and all will be well, is not a far off place. Your destination is a person, God. It's an absolutely breathtaking claim and it's unique to the Christian gospel. In Hinduism, the question of where we're going is wrapped up in an endless circular karma in which we're reincarnated again and again until we lose ourselves and our identity in a cosmic oneness. In Islam, the focus is on a heaven full of earthly pleasures, pleasures that were forbidden on earth but take center stage in heaven with the endless experience of wine and sex. Atheists tell us that we're not going anywhere, but they're still searching for a place on earth where all will be well. And many others live with some abstract concept of eternal happiness. Always that place is far off, and we're never really sure if we will make it. We can never know. We're always waiting for that day where we'll find out, were we enough? Did we do enough? Only the Christian gospel puts the person of God and the promise of relationship with God at the very center of our search for meaning. Jesus tells his disciples, it is not aware that you are seeking as you look for fulfillment and for peace. It is a who, deep and fulfilling relationship with God. So firstly, where are we going? Secondly, how do we get there? I wonder if any of you have had the unfortunate experience of looking at some damage in your house or your car and thinking that it was only a cosmetic issue, only to find that the problem is rooted in the very structure of the object itself and the very foundations of the house or the engine of the car and the whole thing needs to be scrapped and started over. When we look across the various worldviews that make up our world, um, various systems of thinking through which we view and understand the world, it seems that all accept the Christian faith as we look across this broken world, insist that the problem is only cosmetic. In the search for meaning, for significance, for a destiny that's secure, for a destination where all will be well. These worldviews are all rooted in one of three ways, in our thinking, our feeling, or our doing. And the pattern is the same regardless of the root. They tell us that if we can simply think the right things, if we can feel the right things, if we can just bring ourselves to do the right things, then actually we'll become good enough and everything will be fine. We'll obtain the life that we are after. And in our self-sufficient, self-oriented cultures, these philosophies are very appealing. We want to save ourselves. But the Christian faith starts by giving us some very bad news. It tells us that our endless striving to get there are only cosmetic changes that cannot succeed because the problem is fundamental to our very beings. We cannot save ourselves. The things that we've done wrong and the things that we failed to do that we ought to have done, the Bible calls it sin, have completely separated us from God who is morally perfect. His perfection and justice mean that he cannot leave sin unpunished. He can't turn a blind eye to it. He can't simply sweep it under some cosmic eternal carpet. 
And we in our very beings are fallen, broken, so we're powerless to help ourselves. We simply cannot will ourselves into perfection. We can't will our pasts into perfection. If God had left us there, we would be utterly hopeless. This is why the person of Christ is so central to the gospel. He did what we are unable to do. Many of you will have heard this before, but let me give to you again the wonder that is the gospel message. Knowing that there was no way we could make our own way back to him, because of his great love for us, God made a way himself. Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life, the life we ought to have lived. And then gave up on the brutality of the cross, his perfect life as a ransom for us. He took on the just punishment for the things that we'd done wrong. He paid the price, the death that was due us. And he offers in exchange his life. A crucial exchange has occurred. His life for ours and our life for his and in putting our trust in him we take on his life and we become a new being in other words uniquely and wonderfully in the christian message our starting point is a transformation of our being through which we have a relationship with god as a result of which we think feel and do differently it's an incredible reversal Michael Ramsden puts it like this, the Christian gospel is not rooted in any of these three, thinking, feeling, doing. The gospel is not just a system of thought, a type of mystical experience or a way of life. Christ did not simply come to give us a new system of thinking, even though there can be nothing more profound than knowing him. Christ did not come to give us a new feeling of God, even though there is nothing more life-changing than meeting him. Christ did not come to simply tell us how to live, even though we're told we should be known for the things we do. Christ is ultimately rooted ontologically in being. We are not meant to earn our own way there, thinking, feeling, doing in order to become good enough. We are being invited to accept grace, which changes us in our being as a result of which we think feel and do differently and I love that Jesus looks to Thomas and says to him if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him in every other system we're striving for a destination that is far off both in time and in place and we're waiting for this destination where we will finally one day arrive and find out if we've been good enough. Jesus looks to his disciples and says to them, from now on you can know him. We need not wait. Right now, if you want to know Jesus, you can, whether for the first time or whether you've lived with him your whole life but you want to know him better. You don't need to wait to be good enough, clear enough in your thinking, 
secure enough in your feeling, holy enough in your actions. You don't need to wait to find that kind of fulfillment. You can come to him right now, just as you are, and he promises he will do the transforming work and change you in your being. The claim is staggering and it's completely unparalleled. But let me highlight one final thought before I move on to the third question. The exchange at the heart of the gospel is completely free in that Jesus, because of his great love for us, paid the heavy price on our behalf and we go free. But although it's freely given, we must still count the cost and that cost is this. It's an exchange. You can only have one life. It's not just a case of receiving his gift, his life. You exchange one life for the other. Let me ask you a a challenging question. Are you trying to take on the life of Jesus without putting down your own life? It won't work. The Bible tells us that if we want to follow Jesus, we must lay down our lives. It's an issue of lordship and follow him. And we do it not only because the exchange is amazing. We get life instead of death. So we do it because he is amazing. We trust him. So the prospect of him being Lord of our lives is not a scary thing. It's a wonderful and a life-giving thing because we know that he loves us and he knows what's good for us. It isn't frightening. But in any case, he can only have one life. Where are we going? How do we get there? And finally, how does this help us with our troubles? It's really important to remember Jesus' audience. He's talking to 12 men, 10 of whom he knows will go on to give their lives as martyrs for their belief in God. When Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God, he's clearly not intimating that there will be an absence of trouble if only we believe. That's not it at all. And in fact, the Bible promises us that there will be many troubles that come our way as we follow him because we'll be persecuted by an unbelieving world. It's not in the absence of trouble in which peace is found. Jesus' point is far more profound. He is pointing to the key, as Paul wrote, of being content, of being at peace in every and any situation. That key is in relationship with God and in the character of God. Jesus is telling his disciples that in believing in the saving work of God on the cross, in believing in what Jesus has done on our behalf, and in taking on his perfect life, our striving is over. Our search for fulfillment has found its home. And we can have assuredness of salvation today. We're not waiting for some future date to find out if we've been good enough. That deeper struggle of the heart... Our separation from our creator God has been conclusively overcome in the person of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled. But he's making a broader point as well. He's telling the disciples, believe in God. In other words, believe that what he has said about himself is true. 
you know, when we're going through the storms of life, we can begin to allow those storms to become the absolute truth for us so that they shape our perceptions of everything else, including the character of God. But it doesn't even take a belief in God to realize that our perceptions of our own circumstances are not solid ground. You don't need to have lived very long before you realize that there are some things you passionately believed in the moment were the very best thing for you and heaven shut the door on them and you were left wheeling only to find a few weeks, months, years down the line that had you gone down that road it would have been devastating. Other times we walk a journey that seems crippling in the moment only to find that it proves to be a massive blessing in disguise. And only the foresight of God could have seen how that one road leads to all the others. If we allow our circumstances to dictate to us our view of God, we will quickly run aground. Here's what Jesus is saying. In the midst of the storm, believe in God. In other words, trust him. Not trust him that all your problems will disappear. But amidst the crushing waves, let the solid ground be for you his unchanging character. His promise to love you, to be faithful to you, to be with you, to fulfill his purposes for your life, to give you a hope and a future. His promise to work all things to the good of those who love him. He can be trusted. Os Guinness puts it like this. It's one of my favorite quotes. Christians do not say to God, I do not understand you at all, but I trust you anyway. That would be suicidal. Rather, they say, Father, I do not trust, I, I do not understand you, but I trust you. Or more accurately, I do not understand you in this situation, but I understand why I trust you anyway. It is therefore reasonable to trust even when we do not understand. We may be in the dark about what God is doing, but we are not in the dark about God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Here's the challenge for us. Jesus looks to his disciples and says to them, from now on you can know him. It's possible to be in the dark about God, not because no light exists, but because we haven't acquainted ourselves with that light. Do you really know him? Do you want to know him? Let me end with a story and then I'll wrap all of this up. You may not be familiar with the name Horatio Stafford, but I'm sure many of you will recognize the hymn that he penned. He was a lawyer in the city of Chicago in the 1800s. In the early 1870s, he and his wife Anna suffered a series of shattering losses, both financially and personally, the greatest of which was the loss of their only son to scarlet fever at the age of four. There was a heavy toll on the family. In 1873, Horatio and Anna decided to take their remaining children, four girls, and take them for an extended break to England to somehow process the loss. Business developments at the last moment meant that Horatio sent his wife and children on ahead of him, saying that he would follow shortly after, but it wasn't to be in the circumstances that he had imagined. There was a tragic collision in the seas. 
And a few days later, he received this crushing telegram from his wife in Wales. It simply read, saved, alone. Stafford got on the very next ship to join his wife, and the captain of that ship, aware of the personal tragedy that was unfolding around him, called him up onto the bridge of the ship and said to him, we've done our best to calculate it, and we think this will have been the spot at which the ship sunk. And history tells us that Stafford, on hearing that news, went back down to his cabin and penned these now famous words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live. If the seas above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine. For in death, as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall sound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He was a man who had understood what Thomas is asking of Jesus and Jesus' incredible reply. I've been considering three questions. Where are we going? How do we get there? And how does this help us in our troubles? Let me wrap this back up in Jesus' profound answer. He is the way. He is both the journey and the destination. It is impossible to be in relationship with God without going through the way that Jesus has made for us. And our destination is to be with him. He is the truth. We can trust him that what he has said about himself is true. His promises can be entirely relied upon so we can live this life and all of its troubles with an assuredness of what is to come and with a deep comfort of knowing we walk hand in hand with God who is trustworthy. We look to heaven full of a sure hope that the promise of salvation will stand and that we are being saved into a relationship with someone on whom we can rely. And he is the life. He offers us true life, perfect life, on which God looks with favor and through which we can enjoy relationship with God. And in calling himself the life, who reminds us that we can only have one life, we must either choose our own broken lives destined for death, or his, which lives eternally in the great exchange. It's a seemingly simple statement, but it's packed with meaning. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. Now, I'm aware that there might be some of you who are sitting here thinking, 
I'm not convinced about anything that you've just said, and I have so many objections. If that's you, I'd love to speak with you after this meeting. Please do feel free to come up and ask questions or raise your objections. I'd love to talk some more. There might be some of you who are sitting here thinking, well, yeah, actually, I've been thinking about some of this stuff. I'd like to find out more. If that's you, there's an alpha course that this church will be running. I think there will have been leaflets that you were given on your way here. I'd really encourage you to do that course. It's a very non-threatening environment in which to raise your questions and to find out more about the Christian faith. But there may be some of you here who have been thinking about this for some time now. And actually, you know that Jesus died for you and you've been waiting for an opportunity to commit your life to him. If that's you, I'd love to pray with you. And I wonder if I can ask us just to bow our heads for a moment. And as all eyes are closed, I'm going to give you, if that was you, I'm going to give you an opportunity just in this moment as everyone's eyes are closed. If you would just indicate to me, as just by raising your hand or catching my eye, and I'll know who I'm then going to be praying for, I want to pray with you that you would have that opportunity today. And just leave literally just a few moments of silence and then I'll pray with us. Father, we're so grateful to you for sending your son Jesus and for making a way for us to be with you. Father, we say to you that we are sorry for the things that we have done that we ought not to have done and for the things that we failed to do that we ought to have done. And Father, we so gratefully, thankfully accept the provision of your grace, of your forgiveness through the cross. Father, we give our lives to you. We say, yeah, we want to exchange our lives for yours. Please, will you come into our lives, God? Come and be Lord over our lives. We want to commit ourselves to you. And we thank you, God, that that is possible because of what you've done. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been reminded this morning that Jesus untroubled and calmed his disciples by pointing them to himself, the way, the truth, and life. And my blessing this morning is that we will further investigate and experience this claim by following Jesus' teachings, the path to Jesus, which will guide us to the right truth, and the truth gives us life, a meaningful and purposeful life. Go in Jesus' name.